Our reading this morning is taken from 2 Timothy 3, 10-17. That's on page 1196, the New Testament. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of God. Good morning. Good to see everybody again. We are carrying on, as you may have worked out from the reading, with our series in 2 Timothy. So if you do have a Bible um, within reach, it would be great to be on page 1100 and 96. Uh, To follow along, that's not compulsory, putting it out there as an option. Uh, So to Timothy, I'll pray, and then we'll have a look at this passage together. Father God, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that you love us so much, that not only uh, did you speak into our world, uh, to our Uh, forefathers many, many years ago, and then came in Jesus Christ. But you have preserved that word for us uh, down the years so that we can open your word and read it and hear your voice. And as we think about that this morning, we pray that you would be working in us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to change. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our title uh, this morning is The True Good Life. Now, when I say the words, the good life, where does your mind go? Looking around the room, I imagine there's probably a little bit of variety in what the good life might mean for uh, different kinds of people. Perhaps, you know, for you, you think New York, rooftop bar, courvoisier, cigars, fast cars, those sorts of things. Perhaps you think south of France, chateau, vineyard, you know, a nice glass of whatever your favourite is. That's not the kind of good life that Paul is going to tell us about in this chapter. It is the kind of good life that the kind of guys we were thinking about last week might try to sell. So those uh, who were here last week, you may remember, um, we were looking at people that Paul described as false teachers, those who presented themselves one way, but actually underneath they were something different. On the surface they looked religious, 
but actually their lives didn't match up. But if we look at that final description of them in chapter 3, verse 4, we see that they are described as lovers of pleasure. So actually they might have tried to sell us that kind of good life here. But in contrast to them, Paul says to Timothy, I don't want you to be like those false teachers. I want you to be like me. Paul says to Timothy, follow in my footsteps. The kind of life that I live is the true good life. This is what it really looks like. And it's probably a bit counterintuitive to us, a bit surprising. But listen along and I think we'll see that actually the good life that Paul tells us about is in fact the best life. So we see from verse 10 that Paul is contrasting how Timothy should live with how the false teachers lived. So verse 10, you, however, know all about. So don't be like them, be like me. And he goes on, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions and sufferings. Well, we'll get on to the persecutions and sufferings in a moment. But it's interesting that the first two things Paul says are, you know about my life and my teaching. We saw that one of the distinctives of the false teachers that Paul warns Timothy against is the difference between their life and their teaching. They say one thing, but they do another. They present themselves one way, but underneath they aren't like that at all. And unlike those false teachers, and like Jesus, With Paul, there is no difference between how he taught and how he lived. So Jesus taught, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And as Jesus was being murdered on the cross, he looked down on his enemies. He looked down on those who were persecuting him and he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. No gap between Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching. And the same with Paul, no gap between his life and his teaching, no hypocrisy. And so Paul says, look, Timothy, what the false teachers are teaching and their life might be attractive to you, but do not follow them, even if their message seems more convincing. Because, verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and impostors, these other guys, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, when Paul says that those others will go from bad to worse, he doesn't mean that their ministries will fail. He means that actually their ministries will probably do well. Going from bad to worse in their situation is persuading more people, gathering more followers to themselves. And you can see that as the way that Paul sets that as a contrast to persecution. So he says, on the one hand, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, whereas those others will go on from bad to worse. What's the opposite of persecution? Well, praise. As Jesus himself said, woe to you when all speak well of you, for so they did of the false prophets. Paul says, not so the faithful. And he says this to Timothy, he says, You know what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Well, we might not know uh, the kinds of things that happened to Paul at Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, so we'll think about that briefly. Lystra was Timothy's home. So Lystra is where Timothy grew up. Uh, And the events that Paul is speaking about at 
Antioch, Iconium, Lystra happened before Timothy joined Paul on his missionary journeys. So he may even have observed those events in Lystra. But either way, Paul says he knows about them. So in Antioch, you can read about this in Acts 13. Paul arrives in the city of Antioch and initially he is welcomed in. And the local Jews say, come and speak in the synagogue. And Paul does and lots of people come along and they say, come back next week. But in between times, jealousy has grown for Paul's popularity. And so he turns up the next week and he is mocked and he is reviled and he is driven out of the city, Antioch. Next, at Iconium, a consortium of Jews and Gentiles who normally didn't go get on very well, they are united in their hatred of Paul, and with the government authorities, they attempt to murder Paul. But Paul manages to escape. That's Iconium. And then finally at Lystra, this is the, the strangest of all, Paul turns up, uh, he and Barnabas, they heal a lame man, and the locals in Lystra say they're the gods. The Greek gods have come to visit us and they think that Paul is, uh, is um, Hermes and that uh, Barnabas is Zeus and they try to make sacrifices to them. And Paul and Barnabas say, don't do that. We're just men like you, worship God in heaven. But then again, Jews who don't like Paul turn up and turn the people of the city against Paul and they drag him out of the city, throw rocks at him until they think he is dead and then leave him there in a pile of blood. But when the believers gather around him, it turns out that he wasn't actually dead. He revives, he gets up, and he walks back into the city because he's the Apostle Paul and he's a legend. So when Paul says in the second half of verse 12, these persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me, well, he clearly doesn't mean by rescued what we might think he means by rescued. You think, Paul, you don't sound like a man who's been rescued from persecutions at all. You sound like a man who's suffering greatly from persecutions. I think what Paul means is, I got through those persecutions that Satan threw at me to try to throw me off my course, throw me off my mission, distract me from my faith, and I was still trusting afterwards. I was still pressing on in the faith. You see, contrary to what many teachers today will say, so we will hear many people say, God wants you to be happy and wealthy and prosperous, and Satan wants you to be poor and sick and your life to be really rubbish. Satan doesn't care whether your life is good or bad. Satan doesn't care whether you are rich or poor or healthy or sick. His only goal is to stop you trusting in Christ. His only goal is to take away your faith. If Satan thinks he can make you lose your faith by making you rich so that you trust in your wealth and not in God, he'll make you rich. If Satan thinks he can take away your faith by making you poor so that you resent God or walk away from him or don't trust in him, then he'll make you poor. If Satan thinks he can take away your faith by making you healthy, then he'll make you healthy. If Satan thinks he can take away your faith by making you sick, he'll make you sick. He doesn't care whether we're rich or poor, healthy or sick. He just wants to take away our faith. So when Paul says, yet from them all the Lord rescued me, he doesn't mean that he avoided the trials, clearly. He doesn't mean that they weren't severe. They were. He means he came out the other side of those trials, still loving Jesus, still in the race, still heading for that final goal of the promise of life. In Christ Jesus. And this is in contrast to that kind of life that we saw in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3. 
lovers of themselves, lovers of money, that list of uh, horrible characteristics in between, and finishing with lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Paul says, actually, the good life is a life of faith in Christ. Not necessarily an easy life, but a life where we're on the race, the race that matters. Turn back with me to chapter 1, verse 1. This kind of sets up the whole book. Sometimes the greetings at the beginning of Paul's letters are very much, um, you know, great to be in touch. Uh, I'm the Apostle Paul, don't forget that, and, and move straight in. Here we get a bit of theology, kind of extra bit of theology, crammed in right at the beginning. Sorry, they always matter. This bit's even more, even more important. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. A promise of life to come in Christ Jesus that follows through the whole book and turn to uh, the, the, the almost the last bit, chapter 4, verse 6, and we get this reference to the life, sorry, to the race and the fight. Paul says this, and again remember Paul is writing this from prison, knowing he's going to die soon. Verse 6, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I am at the end and I'm still trusting. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, i.e. the day Jesus comes back, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The good life is being in that race, knowing what we are running for, knowing that our past in Christ is forgiven, knowing that in the present we have a Father who loves us and who looks after us, and looking forward to a great future in heaven on the last day when Jesus returns. And in the meantime, sometimes it will be hard to live for Christ. Those words in verse 12 I remember being shocked by these when I first read them about 15 years ago. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that is not to say that we should be seeking it. That is not to say that we should be as difficult as we possibly can be in our Christian life in order to attract persecution to us. We should be wise, we should be gentle, we should be loving. But if there is no part of our life where we can say, do you know what, if I disobeyed Christ in this area of my life, life would be easier. If there's no area where we can say it would seem easier to live without Christ's rules here than to live for him, then we want to be concerned. So if there's, you know, if we Things we might say, you know, like, I could, I, if, I, if without Jesus, then at work or with my mates, I could be one of the lads, one of the girls. I could spend my money how I like. My relationship with my family would be that much easier. I'd be respected intellectually by people if I rejected Christ. If there's no area in which we are suffering for the gospel, that is, living differently for Jesus and it makes life harder... If there's no area where we can say that, then that should be a cause for concern for us. Because Paul says, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus 
will be persecuted. Now, we can and should thank God that living here in the UK, we suffer much less than many people around the world. Most of us. I think of a friend of mine, uh, Anwar, from a previous church. Uh, He is from a Muslim background, and when he became a Christian, uh, his father sent over hitmen from his home country to kill him. They failed, and he is still with us today, still trusting Christ. I think of Ziggy, converted out of a Jewish background. Uh, When he was converted, his family cut him out of the will, and they had no contact with him at all for six years. They're now back in touch. I don't know whether he's back in the will. Or I think of my friend Anna Louise, converted out of a British atheistic background. Uh, Around the dinner table, at home, when she goes home, and her parents have friends around, they mock her in front of their friends for her ridiculous Christian faith, for the morals that she holds to, for the way that she lives her life. Now, perhaps that's not the way for us. Perhaps it's just that in the office, people know that we're just a bit different. Perhaps they clam up when we join the conversation. The humour changes subtly. We know that people talk about us behind our backs. Perhaps it's like that at family gatherings. It's a bit awkward. You're the slightly strange Christian one, or the one who's just a little bit too keen about your faith. Now, if those things are happening to you, then verse 12 should be an encouragement. It's not necessarily that your faith, well, it's not that your faith is going wrong. We may need to check ourselves and say, am I living the Christian life wisely? But it may be just that we are desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And as a result, we're seen as different. As a result, we are receiving some mild, in most cases, persecution for that. But it's not easy, day to day. It's not easy if it's relentless. You know, sometimes every day at work, every day with family, every day with friends, it can be difficult. How then do we keep going? What is the strength to run this race when it's difficult, when there doesn't seem to be much encouragement, when there doesn't seem to be anyone on the sidelines cheering you along? How do we have the strength to carry on? Well, it is from the bread of life, from God's words. Paul goes on to say, verse 14, those guys, they'll go on from bad to worse, but as for you, verse 14, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus, through faith in Christ Jesus. There's no magic answer to make the Christian life easy. There's no one solution that I can give you today which will sort you out for the rest of your days. No more work required, no more effort required, no more running, no more one foot in front of the other in the race. It's just simple things. I love that Paul says, um, continue, uh, because you know those from whom you learned it, and we know from whom Timothy learned the faith, from his mother and from his grandmother. Not from sophisticated theologians necessarily, not from Eastern philosophers, his mother and his grandmother, faithfully teaching him the word of truth. And from the scriptures, the scriptures that he has come to know, knowing that they are faithful, that they will sustain him in the race. We need to remember what the race is for and stay in the race. In this book is everything we need to teach and train each of us to fulfill the ministries, the callings 
that God has given us. Paul goes on, verse 16, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Elsewhere, Paul writes that the Lord has prepared in advance for us good works to walk in. And Paul says, how do we get equipped to live out, to perform those good works? God's word. God's word is the way. So when we read the Bible, we read it not as as a work, not as an attempt to justify ourselves. I've read the Bible today, now I can feel good about it. We read the Bible the same way that we eat food. We eat food to stay alive. We need God's word to stay alive. Uh, The church that I grew up in had um, a sort of fairly quaint little uh, parish magazine with uh, little stories about this and that, most of which were fairly inconsequential. One stuck in my mind all these years. It was very clever. Um, Probably fictional, but anyway, in this story, a man writes to his vicar and says, Vicar, I've been coming to your church for ten years now, and I can't remember any of the sermons that you've preached, so I'm not going to come to your church anymore. And the vicar writes back and says, Fully understand. I can't remember any of the meals that my wife has cooked me over the last ten years, so I'm not going to bother eating anymore. Hopefully you get the point. We don't need to remember something. Something doesn't need to be particularly stunning in order to keep us alive. Even if it's just bread and water, it keeps us alive. So God's word week by week at church is one way of keeping us alive in the Christian race. But as we go through the week, there are so many other voices bombarding us from all angles that I want to say one of the best things as well we can do is read the Bible for ourselves, ideally, every day. Again, not as a work, but to encourage ourselves from God's word every day. Other sources are constantly tempting us. You know, TV, the internet, radio, newspapers, magazines. And much of what they say is interesting. Reading the Bible can seem like hard work, but it is worth it. I think in my own life, how many times I'll be getting the tube somewhere and, and, and perhaps I hadn't read the Bible that day and I'll get on and, and I'll think, oh, I can read the Bible on the tube and then I'll see a copy of the Metro or Shortlist or whatever and I think, I'll just pick this up first and half an hour later I get off the tube having caught up with the latest celebrity gossip or you know, news or whatever it is. Do, have I benefited from that? No, not really. Those times when I've opened my Bible first and spent 30 or 40 minutes listening to the voice of the living God sitting in a crowded tube carriage or on a bus? Have I regretted not catching up with the latest news and banter? Not at all. When the Bible is opened, God speaks every time. Now, we may not feel it every time. So as as with the food example, sometimes you have a really great meal. And some of us may be able to remember sermons in the past that changed our lives. Or particular times when we sat down and opened our Bibles and the Lord really impacted a particular verse or a particular truth on our hearts. As I say, not every time. This morning, I sat down and I'm, at the moment I'm reading through the Bible um, uh, sequentially and uh, I'm just uh, about halfway, well, a bit, for, a bit further than halfway through Deuteronomy, um, wading through, and I use that term, some of the laws probably no one's favourite bit of the Bible, but it's all God's word, it's all good for us. 
And this morning, as I was sitting there at my desk in my room, unspectacularly just reading through the Bible, one of the laws in particular, God just reminded me of a sin in my life, a sin that I need to repent of. And so as I sat there, I stopped reading, and I prayed, and I repented of that sin, and I prayed that God would help me keep away from it in the future, and then I prayed for friends of mine who I know might be tempted to struggle in a similar way, and then I moved on. Every time we read the Bible, God speaks, and sometimes he will take a particular verse or word or thought by his Spirit and speak into our hearts. But sometimes he won't. You know, most days, on average, that doesn't happen. I read the Bible and I, and I pray through it, and I'm glad that I have, but every time is worthwhile, every time God speaks I'm getting sort of fairly practical. Um, I've put a a little sheet at the back um, with a a sign-up list on. If you're not in the habit of reading through the Bible at the moment and you're not sure where to start, then there are two things that I'd I'd recommend to you. One is um, an email that I get every day. It's called The Word at Work. And um, there's a a guy somewhere who writes these, um, a friend of a friend, um, and, uh, and he works through books of the Bible, and there's a short passage, and then an explanation of it, and a short prayer. It comes through every morning, Monday to Friday, and it's a really good way just to get some of God's Word into your life easily. So if you're not in the habit of reading the Bible at the moment, that would be a really good place to start. If you are, and you want to push it a bit further, then there are many great Bible plans that I could recommend to you. And I've put, put this list at the back of so if you pop your email address down on there then um, I will uh, email you, I'll either sign you up for the word at work uh, or um, send you a list of recommended resources. Because it's not that we have to do it in depth every day, it can be quite quick. Again, a lady from my previous church, I remember bumping into her on the train one time and we got into talking about how she reads the Bible and she she said that she reads uh, one chapter of the Old Testament and one chapter of the New Testament every day. And I said, oh, how long have you been doing that for? And she said, 15 or 20 years. Now, over 15 or 20 years, um, she will have read the New Testament, well, roughly 20, maybe more times. Through the Old Testament, slightly less, because it's longer, maybe 10 or 15 times over that time. Two chapters a day. Probably, for most of us, that's less than 10 minutes. For some, perhaps a little longer. That would be a great place to start. As in a marathon, how do you finish a marathon? Is it in a great big sprint? No, just one step after another. One step, one step, one step, one step to keep you going in that race. And the same with the Bible. Small, faithful, day by day. You see, because the promise of life that is coming in Christ Jesus is that promise that is at the end of the race. And those things that we talked about at the beginning, that good life, whatever you think it is, those things, if we trust Christ, we will get a better life than anything that this world can offer. We may well get the chateau. We may well get the, the, the vineyard. We may well get the courvoisie. I'm not sure about the cigars. Cigars in heaven, probably not. To be honest, I've got no idea. Maybe. Ask the Lord when he comes back. But that is the finishing line, the promise of life in Christ Jesus. And in the meantime, when it's difficult, this is our bread. This is our daily bread to keep us going. So let us read it. Let us look forward to that final day. I'll pray that we'd make it. Let's pray.
Again, Father God, we thank you so much for how much you love us. That you didn't leave us lost in this world. That you gave us a word. And we don't have to wonder. We don't have to wait for prophets anymore to come along and speak to us from you. But we have your word in the Bible. Any one of us can open your word and, and read it for ourselves. Or listen to it online or on our phones or have others read it to us. Thank you for that. That when we hear the words of the Bible read, then we hear your voice. And so we pray that you would help each of us to eat at your table, to receive the bread that you offer us, and to build our lives on that rock. In Jesus' name, amen.